Welcome to the Physician Negotiator Podcast, where no decision is left to chance. With your host, Doc of All Trades. Today we are pleased to have Dr. Corey S. Fawcett as our guest. Dr. Fawcett is a serial entrepreneur, author of three books entitled The Doctor's Guide. He is a financial coach and an expert speaker on the topic. He is an avid blogger of his website called The Prescription for Financial Success at drcoreysfawcett.com. He was a very successful and, might I add, happy surgeon of 21 years and has since then retired from medicine at an early age, completely unscathed. Now he considers himself a repurposed surgeon. Last time I spoke with Dr. Fawcett, he had just finished an RV tour of Route 66, fresh off retirement. Dr. Corey Fawcett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to talk to you. <laughs> hey, Dr. Fawcett. So what have you been up to? I, I haven't spoken to you since we, we last spoke at SEEK. Um, at the time, you were a mentor and you had a, just a giant line of physicians that wanted your advice. And uh, you gave me excellent advice and for that I appreciate. And uh, so uh, and I see you've been pretty busy on your blog. So what, what have you been, uh, been up to the past year? Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing we've been doing is traveling a lot. Um, I think, uh, you know, once you let go of your job and you're free to move around, suddenly uh, the whole world opens up to you. And we calculated out that we spend about 50% of our time away from home now. Wow. Uh, traveling the world. And so that's, that's been a lot of fun. And I'm working on a, a new course uh, that will be coming out soon. And after that, we'll go back to adding more to the book series. Uh, and in the meantime, just uh, blogging away. Now, with respect to the course, is it uh, what, who's the course targeted? Uh, the course will be for locum tenens doctors wanting to uh, maximize their experience as a locum's doctor. Oh, excellent, excellent! Yeah, I, and and you and you did uh, you engaged in locum tenens after you finished your uh, private practice um, run? Yes, I did uh, three years of locum's work uh, as a way for me to taper down my practice from a. I didn't think if I went from full speed to nothing that I would do well with that transition. So I retired from my uh, long-term practice, began doing locum tenens in small critical access hospitals and began to taper my time down until, you know, the last seven months, I only worked one week a month and then was able to kind of let go. And, and it was a nice way for me to, to ease out of medicine. Oh, and I think, you know, that's going to be great for a lot of people who consider uh, slowing down their practice and they may not necessarily find the opportunity in their own practice, which was one of the problems I was encountering, in fact. Um, uh, so with respect, you, know, you said you're traveling a lot. Now, you've always felt that to be very important in your, in your, in, in your entire career as I, as I read your book. Is that, is that true? Yes. Uh, we, we took uh, somewhere between eight and 12 weeks of vacation every year throughout my career. Um, I, I didn't do that the first two years when I was an employee of the business because they had a set amount of vacation you could take. But once I became a partner, taking more vacation based on your productivity meant you just were going to make a little less money. And so as long as you took your total share of the call, nobody really cared. We took about an average of a week, a month of vacation. And usually we spend a big chunk, three weeks in the summer, uh, doing a long motorhome trip with the family. And I discovered on my first three-week vacation that if all you ever take is one-week vacations, you never will get decompressed. And that may be part of burnout because I found that it took me a whole week just to let go of what was going on in my life as a doctor, the, the anxiety, the stress, 
And then by the second week, you're beginning to enjoy it. And you really enjoy that third week. And then you are ready to come back to work. Exactly. I know a lot of uh, first-time residents or graduates, they only get six weeks of vacation. And so their strategy is to kind of spread it out. Um, and that might nece- that might be a mistake um, based upon what you've said. That might be. If, if you only take one-week vacations all the time, it, it, that may be a mistake. I, I think you need some bigger blocks of time to really give yourself a chance to decompress. Uh, I totally agree. Um, I just myself went part-time and I've, I've, I've first time I've had like three weeks off. I, I haven't had that in 15 years and it was the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. Uh, um, so you're, you're absolutely right. I wish I had, I wish I knew that back then. One thing I did that I recommended in my book, uh, the doctor's guide to start in your practice, right? And, and that book, by the way, is geared directly at the resident who's transitioning into practice, how to make that a smooth transition. One of the things I did was I took three months off in between residency and my first job. And, you know, you're never really going to get a chance to take a three-month vacation once you start working. And that was just phenomenal. I mean, by the time you finish your residency, you are really beat down and tired. And to take three months to decompress before you begin your new job was wonderful. Wow. And I've, to, I've talked to some doctors who finished their residency on Friday, traveled all the way across the country and started their next job on Monday. Uh, that's not a good idea. Uh, you need a little break in between these two just to, to wind back down and then start a new. I totally agree. In fact, I think your, your, your point really illustrates the fact that you got to plan this thing out way in advance. Um, you got to save up for it and waiting to the last minute thinking, you know, I'll get my three months, you know, in 10 years or 20 years or when I retire, uh, it's going to lead to burnout. Like, just like you said. Yeah. And we planned a long time ahead for that because you really got to save up some money to not work for three months. Uh, and as a resident, we only lived on 50%. I was married and we only lived on 50% of our income and the rest we, we saved. Wow. So we were able to take a three month, uh, vacation at the end of that with no problem. Outstanding. You know, I, I think I took one month off and in retrospect, you're right. It, it was not enough. Um, just for the decompression sake. But imagine if you only took a day off. Oh uh, yeah. And pretty much everybody I know, that's exactly what they did. Um, they're and so you anxious. A, you got a month and that was, that was way better than the day or a week or something, but maybe not as much as you wish you had. Exactly. And you know, it, it was, it was interesting now that you mentioned it now looking back, people were a little resentful that I did that because uh, you know, they're like, well, where were you? I was working, you know? Um, but again, it was the best thing that I ever did. I got a little bit of that from the guys who I was going to work with. I said, I'm available on September 1st. And they said, well, but we want you to work in August. And I said, well, but I'm not available till September 1st. <laughs> so it all worked out, but they couldn't realize, I mean, what, you're just doing nothing. Why aren't you here working? Well, I'm doing nothing for a very good reason. I worked really hard for the last five years. And, and I went through residency before they had this 80 hour work week restriction. Exactly. Uh, I, I put in uh, many, many weeks that exceeded a hundred hours. So uh, I was ready for a little break. You know, and I think, I think what the, 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 the take home message from your book, starting your practice, right. Was that, you know, the earlier you plan things out, you know, it's kind of like making little tiny changes are going to have big 
uh, effects, like the butterfly effect down the road. So it's really early. It's really important to plan it early. And I think, I think your entire career kind of has reflected that. Yeah, I've been on a trajectory uh, that I planned out a long time ago. Even my retirement date, I had already planned out when I was in medical school. And I told people, you know, I, I had one advisor that was a, a, a doctor that I asked, you know, here's my plan. I'm going to you know, work to 20 years and then retire uh, at age 50 uh, and save up this much money. And, and he looked at it and says, well, that's, that's not even possible. There's no <laughs> way you can save that much money. Oh, my goodness. And, and I'm really glad I didn't follow his advice. I mean, I, I laid out a plan and I followed that plan. And so when I reached 50, I was, I, I was there. I was ready to retire. Uh, the money was in place. But the funny thing was, way back then, I did not anticipate the fact that I'm not sure I wanted to retire when I hit that moment. So I had everything ready and I had planned ahead. But then when I got there, uh, I took a slightly different path. And I ended up uh, tapering things down. And I ended up retired at age 54 after a slow taper in eased out. Uh, so I, I ended up doing it slightly different, but I was ready. You know, I guess, would that be a result of the fact that you actually really enjoyed your career? Uh, I did. Uh, I, there were, there were moments, uh, during, you said I came out unscathed. I'm not sure I came out unscathed. <laughs> Um, overall, I had a fulfilling career. I, I enjoyed medicine, but, but there, there, it had its moments where, you know, I wished I wasn't doing this. Um, there, there were some of those along the way. I'm not sure there's any career that doesn't have those moments uh, along the way, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, as opposed to today, like you, you take the average, uh, I, I think I read the recently 78% of physicians feel burnt out right now. And I imagine if, if they had the financial means and if they were financially independent, they probably would walk away and never look back. Uh, well, that would be one option. Uh, but one of the, my third book was about those options. So, yeah, the, you know, if you, if you are burned out, uh, if you're financially independent, suddenly you can make some options happen uh, rather than just walk away. What if you said, hey, I'm burning out. I need a little sabbatical and then I'm going to restart my practice in a slightly different manner in a way that I enjoy it instead of doing this, you know, and, and you can have options. Oh, I, so I, you know, that was your, the smart career and alter, smart career alternatives and retirement book. And I actually purchased that from you at the seat conference. And my mind was just blown after I read it. Cause you, the advice that you give was exactly spot on. Um, well, but uh, yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Um, so, uh, again, thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast. So the whole premise of the negotiator being a physician negotiator, and I really think that's what you are. You are an excellent physician negotiator. And the premise is to help physicians become better negotiators by consciously being aware that a, they're in a negotiation. And I think a lot of times you might get in a conversation with somebody, whether it's a hospital administrator, a partner, you know, somebody and not even realize that you're in a negotiation. And I think your smart career, starting your practice right book really kind of emphasizes that. Um, so the first topic I'd like to talk about today is the three rules for finding your job. And the aphorism I was familiar with when I was a resident, uh, my, my attendings would often tell me, hey, when you're looking for a job, you need, you get two of three choices. You get location, 
money or lifestyle. You get to choose two, but you can't have all three. So you have to choose those very, very wisely. Um, are you familiar with uh, with that particular aphorism? I have. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. I'm not sure that I agree with it today. Um, that might have been true in the past, but today with the doctor shortage, um, a lot of people are willing to do things for you they wouldn't have done before. Um, you know, money, especially, uh, people are offering you outrageous sums of money sometimes now to come work in places. And, you know, a couple of decades ago, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, so, so there are some changes happening in your environment and I, I'm not sure you can't have all three. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I was thinking about it myself and I thought location, money or lifestyle. And based upon your book, I, I agree 100%. You could probably have it all. And I would say the fourth one, if you were to add one might be environment. Um, because those three things don't really like lifestyle. Sure. It implies like you'll have more free time, but it doesn't imply who you get to work with. So the working environment, I think now is, is more important than it's ever been. Well, one of the things is that people may not realize is they all intertwine with each other. They're not in their own little box. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, when, I, when I was looking for my job, uh, my family lives in Southern Oregon. My wife's family lives in Northern Oregon and they're separated uh, on a road, Interstate 5. So uh, I only wanted a job between our two families. Now, if I had chosen a location, let's say Florida, what I would have just changed in my life is every time I want to go home for Thanksgiving dinner, it's four airplane tickets. Every time, uh, you know, I want to do something with my family, it's going to be way more money. So choosing the right location affects how much money you have because it changes all of the equations and making that choice starts a snowball effect. Like, so I, I now live half an hour from my family and about three and a half hours from my wife's family. We lived closer to the South end of, of the state where we found our job. But that meant that my kids know their grandparents. They, my grandparents can come watch the kids play soccer. You know, we can go over for Thanksgiving. It's no big deal. But had we moved a long ways away, one of two things would happen. Either I don't see my family and my kids don't know their grandparents or the amount of money I have available is drastically dropped just by that one choice of where would you live? So yeah. they're interconnected. I, I like that concept that if you box them out and let's say you're, you're wearing, weighing money versus location, you might not understand that that choice of location can actually reduce your money through expenditures, not necessarily through earning. That's great. Right. Uh, there's two, you know, for instance, if you choose to live in San Francisco, kiss your money, goodbye. Exactly. Uh, you know, you're going to pay so much more for everything, even if they pay you more, you know, so, so one choice is going to affect the other. And an example, another one is lifestyle. I chose to take, uh, you know, a week off every month on average, eight to 12 weeks. The more weeks I take off, the less money I make. So lifestyle choices also affect the money part. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, we, I think we're going to mention it here in a minute about that, but you know, uh, one of the statistics that uh, based upon the Merritt Hawkins um, survey from 2017 showed that uh, physicians change jobs so rapidly uh, especially new physicians around, they said they suggest about 
of physicians uh, go through what's called the starter job syndrome. That's where they start a job and then within two years just quit. And so, you know, maybe they are not taking into consideration something exactly like you're talking about, that perhaps this, uh, the cost of living in the area they're, they're living at is just too high. Uh, that's part of it. But I think the biggest thing is they were just lazy about the whole thing. They never actually took the time to figure out what it was they wanted. And, and they figured, oh, I'll just get a job. You know, they've got that. Oh, it'll just be a starter job anyway. Uh, I actually worked with somebody who, who uh, looked at two jobs in the same town. One was in private practice and one was uh, hospital employed. And I asked what were his thoughts about the two jobs. And he said, well, I'm going to take the hospital employed one because it'll be easier for me to leave. Wow. I, I couldn't believe that he was taking his job already planning to leave. And you read the book, uh, starting your practice, right? And, and in there, I detailed a friend of mine who it cost him $175,000 to change jobs. Right. You don't want to change jobs. Uh, it's very, very expensive. Another friend of mine says he's had six different position jobs during his career, and he estimated that that cost him somewhere between $1 and $2 million in his net worth wow. because he kept changing jobs. Wow. Changing jobs is very, very expensive, and it's not just in money. Uh, you think about, uh, you know, if you, some of the people that I know have had their kids in private school and they come and talk to me and I say, Hey, you can't afford private school. You need to put your kids in public school. Well, that would totally disrupt my kids if I moved them to the other school. What do you think happens when you move them to another city? Oh my goodness. Exactly. <laughs> Not only do they change schools, but they're going to lose all of their friends, all their activities, everything they knew of around the area. I mean, you totally disrupt your whole family when you pick them up and move them to another part of the country because you couldn't figure out what kind of job you wanted in the first place. But if you'd sit down and figure that out, and in the book I've got a whole bunch of lists of these are the things you want to think about uh, of what you want to do to decide on your job. And then when you know what your job is, then you can see it when you find it and go out and get that job, and you won't be one of those statistics that picked the wrong job and then took off in a year. Well, you know, and, and I think you, you said it, you nailed it. You said in your book too, that you want to sit down and write it all out, write out the plan. And if you're married or have a significant, significant other, include them in that plan. And uh, you were really clear about that, I think. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're, you know, the wife, mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. <laughs> thing, you know, so you got to make sure that both of you uh, are, are happy with the choice of where you're going to live. Uh, if, if you don't do that, I mean, a lot of these doctor moves are not because the doctor didn't pick the job, right? It's because their spouse is not happy with the place they're living. Right. They, just, they leave. They, you, exactly. know, you know, she doesn't like living here. Well, you could have probably figured that out before you moved there. Exactly. Uh, it's not that hard to get an idea. I mean, if you, uh, let's say another example of where these cross over, let's say you love snow skiing. And your spouse loves snow skiing. So why would you live in Florida? Now, every time you want to go snow skiing, it's going to be very expensive and so and, and inconvenient. And so you're going to cut down the number of times you go do something you love to do. But now look at your life if you picked a job in Colorado and you live right by some great ski resorts and you want to go skiing, you can just take the afternoon off and go skiing. Now you're going to spend the rest of your life doing stuff you love frequently. 
your life is totally different in those two scenarios, simply by knowing what it was you wanted your life to look like and going and getting it. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I, to this day, I have numerous friends who want to change jobs, not because they want to change jobs, it's, it's just because their significant other is just so miserable. So um, excellent advice. Um, looking at, so going back to this Merritt Hawkins survey, and we, we talked about this a little bit. Um, so attitudes based upon generation change somewhat when it comes to choosing a job. And so we've already talked about the three different location money or lifestyle. And this survey kind of goes into that a little bit. And it lists out several other things, not only money, um, location or lifestyle. It also talks about, you know, proximity to family, good financial package, medical facilities, um, specialty support. And it said that the number one thing for graduates of 2017 were going to be adequate call coverage, personal time, followed by lifestyle. So that was first, followed by geographic uh, location being second, and then a good financial package being third. Um, now, you and I spoke a little bit before the before the podcast, and you think that that's kind of a mistake. So, what are your thoughts on that? I think that the the adequate time off and personal time isn't nearly as important as picking the right location, because a lot of things. Uh, let's say you know people want personal time. Okay, so let's say they find this great job in Los Angeles that gives them this personal time they want. It's a super flexible job. But they're going to need to live an hour away to get a nice house they'd like to have. That means every day they're going to have a two-hour commute. Now, if they had picked somewhere else to go where they picked a better location, the the lifestyle will be better in that location, and they only have a 15-minute commute, and they only have a half hour day of commuting, that means that they're going to give up every day that they work for the rest of their life an hour and a half with their family. Now, if personal time and adequate call was your top thing, but you gave up an hour and a half every day just so you could sit in your car commuting to your personal dream job, I think you screwed up on that decision. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, uh, being penny wise and pound foolish, right? <laughs> You, you've got to uh, look at them all together and realize that if you pick the right location and a job in that location that's going to have good uh, personal time and lifestyle, you're going to win all around. Um, I, I think you lose so much. So, you know, for instance, the, the guy who's got a family across the country, uh, every time you go visit the family, you're going to spend all this time in the airport. That's going to eat up much of your life. You know, how much of your personal time now just got wasted sitting in the airport to go to Thanksgiving? You know, there's some of these things uh, we think personal time is really, really important. And then we sacrifice personal time to get something else. Uh, and I think uh, thinking it more through and saying, how will all of the pieces fit together with this particular job uh, will help a lot more. Uh, giving up an hour and a half with your family every day to sit in your car to drive to your dream job. I don't know how long that job is going to feel like a dream job to you. Right. And um, according to the psychological data on happiness, they show that uh, you can get used to certain things in a career, but apparently driving in traffic is not one of them. Under no <laughs> circumstances will you ever get used to it. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I started uh, using books on tape. And so now when I'm on a long drive, I'm listening to a story or listening to some CME stuff. And so I get a twofer out of my drive, but I still wish I didn't have a long drive. You know? Right. And for me, I actually, my home was uh, within three miles, I think it is, of the hospital. Initially, when I bought my home, it was uh, like a half a mile from the hospital. And then they built a new hospital. So the hospital was three miles away. So nothing in my life was farther than three miles uh, in the town I lived in. My office, the surgery center, the athletic club, my church, the, the, the hospital, everything was within three miles. And so I didn't spend a whole lot of time in my car. Well, you know, it's interesting. So that kind of is related to the geographic location in the sense that the survey also talks about the type of city people want to live in, uh, residents would like to live in. And it suggests that most, the vast majority want to live in cities over 100,000 people. Um, and I believe, what, what city did you live in? What was the size of your city when you graduated? I lived in Grants Pass, Oregon, which when I first moved there was a town of about 15,000. And I think we had uh, five surgeons in the town Wow! and today that's about 30,000 people. So I was in that, you know, I think it was 3% that wanted to live in a town less than 25,000 people. Right. Lifestyle in a town like that is unbelievable. Uh, And you can live in a town like that and be close to another big city when you want the big stuff. I I remember uh, when I was a resident, one of my residents said we, we were in Bakersfield, California, a little town, but, it was a big town, but it's a little town. And he was from LA and he couldn't wait to get back to LA. And I asked him why he said, well, there's nothing to do here in this town. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, like movie theaters, there, there's only a few movie theaters here in town, but in LA there's hundreds of them. <laughs> and I says, great. Okay. How many movies did you go to last month? And he said, well, none. I said, well, you could do that right here. You don't need to be in L.A. to go to no movies. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we, we give importance to things that aren't real in our life. We want to have the 700 movies to choose from. But the thing is, you're only going to go to one or two or less a month. So as long as you have that many to choose from, you're going to be OK. Uh, so the life in these smaller towns is really nice. You don't spend your time in the commute. Um, the only thing you're missing is you might not have Nordstrom's or Saks Fifth Avenue in town to shop to shop shop in, but I don't shop in those kind of places anyway. So, well, you know, that's, I think that's the irony of all this data is here. You know, here you have a group of people who want lifestyle, okay, as a top priority, and uh, you know, more personal time, but yet they don't want to live in small towns that are really willing to bend over backwards to give that to them. Yeah, you have the great lifestyle in a smaller community. The giant community, uh, your lifestyle begins to suffer because you spend your time in your car. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there may be you know more plays available or more concerts available, but just how many of those are you really going to go to in a given month? Uh, you're going to be working and you'll be going to your things that your kids are doing. Uh, and you're going to occasionally do those things. And, and most reasonably small towns have, I, I'm not talking about the tiny, tiny little towns that, that are you know, miles and miles from nothing. But I mean, a town of 25,000 people is going to have a great life. Absolutely. And I mean, 
I wish, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, what's, what's sad is that a lot of people wouldn't even consider even interviewing in a, in a job like that. And I think you were fortunate enough to, in, in your location and your proximity to your family to, to take that into consideration. Um, let's see here. So going back to money, let's shift to money again. So location money or lifestyle. And in money, um, not to suggest that it's less important because money is obviously very important. But I believe in your book, you also said, though, um, don't go just for money because no matter how much you make, it'll always be enough. Right. The thing is, is no matter what they offer you, they're going to offer you a good salary. Doctors make good money. Uh, even the low pay and specialties make good money, way more than the national average. So no matter what job you end up with, you're going to get good money. But now there's a doctor shortage. So people are offering even a little better money <laughs> uh, for whatever you do. So it's not really, the other thing is, is interesting is, is money can drive you. Like I've seen some cards come across my desk when I was working that were offering outrageous sums of money, first year guarantee. Uh, they were offering two or three times what I ever made as a full-time surgeon uh, and that was the first year guarantee. Wow. And, um, and I was thinking, why are they offering that? I mean, why would you offer that much money to someone? It's because for some reason, no one wants that job or they're very desperate to get someone to that job. And frankly, there's a reason no one wants that job. And so they're having to offer this huge money. So if you see this job that's offering, oh, an outrageous amount of money, so I'm going to take that one because it's going to pay twice what I can make over here. I bet you're going to be in that 50% that moves in a year or two because you're going to find out why they were offering such an outrageous amount of money and you're not going to want to stay. Exactly. And which goes to um, the whole concept of the, the physician recruiter. And I, I believe you use a recruiter without success in your book. But what's interesting about the survey, it also talks about how, you know, uh, more residents that graduated today get over 50 different solicitations for, for, for starting jobs with outrageous salaries, like you had mentioned. And uh, so what are your thoughts on using recruiters in general? Well, I think you got to remember that the recruiter is simply a tool and you should use the right tool when you need a tool. Okay. So sometimes you want to use a recruiter and the recruiter's job is just to hook you up with a, a place to work. They don't really care if it's the right job for you. As long as they get you a job, they get paid. So their incentives aren't the same as yours. You want the right job. They just want you in a job. And so if you just keep that in mind, you can use a recruiter well. Uh, I, you know, the story in the book was I had a recruiter and I told him I wanted to work between Medford and Portland on Interstate 5. Find me a job in there. And he couldn't find one. And so he called me with this great job in Idaho. And I said, Idaho, oh, is that on Interstate 5 between Medford and Portland? And he wasn't amused. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was 500 miles out of where I wanted to be. And yet he was offering it to me. And I told him, this is what I want. His answer was, well, you're never going to find what you want. So you're going to have to change your expectations. Well, because the thing was, is, since he couldn't find it, it must not exist. That was his attitude. But the thing is, is not all the jobs use recruiters. 
So if you have a particular location that you want to live in, you don't need a recruiter because you need to go talk to everybody who's in that particular location who could potentially work with you. When I actually made a phone call to every place between Medford and Portland and I-5, I think it was six or seven job interviews I set up. Those were six or seven job interviews that the recruiter knew nothing about because those people hadn't advertised these spots yet. They were ready to find a new person, but they hadn't hired a recruiter. So recruiter has some of the jobs available, but not all of the jobs available. And the job you want may not be available because the high quality jobs don't need a recruiter. Ah. Because once somebody knows about that job, they want it, you know, and so they can just put their feelers out and, and get people without paying a recruiter. So I think if you know the exact location where you want to be, it's not a recruiter that you need. It's a telephone and you <laughs> the phone and you talk to all the people in that location and see who's looking for somebody new to come join them. And you'll find what you're looking for, where you want to be. But if you need to go uh, someplace and you, and you just can't even figure out what you want, which is not what I advise, but if you can't figure out what you want, yeah, recruiters as good as anything. But if you really figure out what you want, you can tell that to the recruiter and make him stick to those things and find you the spot that matches those things. Don't, don't let him send you to Idaho when you said you wanted to work in Oregon. Exactly. You know, stick to your things and you can use the recruiter to your advantage. It's, it's like a realtor. You can use a realtor when you're buying a house, but you got to be sure you told the realtor, this is what I want and make him stick to it because he'll always go to a more expensive house than you told him you wanted. Then it makes all the other houses look bad. Well, you know, and the other thing that you pointed out, which is it's spot on, if you're a hospital in trouble, let's say you're having trouble recruiting physicians because of some internal problem. Well, that's going to be the person that's going to hire the recruiter in the first place, correct? Yeah, those guys really need, so those guys really want to get this spot filled. They're going to do everything they can. They're going to advertise it themselves. They're going to be looking for recruiters. They're going to be calling locums companies. They're going to be doing everything. And that job's going to be all over the place. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, with respect to, so you've been in practice several for, for several generations now. Did you ever get an opportunity to work with millennial physicians versus prior generation physicians? I know you probably, I mean, what generation would you consider yourself to be from? I'm the baby boomers. Okay. And so I consider myself to be a Gen X. Um, did you have any opportunity to work with millennials then? We did. Uh, my small town uh, started oh, a couple of decades ago a program with a medical school to help train rural surgeons. So we had two general surgeons, fourth year general surgeons rotating with us for a year. Oh, wow. So every year we'd spend uh, a year with a different two new uh, general surgeons uh, in their training and, and work with them. So I got to see uh, things that are different. Uh, and, and I remember one of the first things that I noticed was uh, their use of texting. Uh, they actually changed my thinking by working with them. Uh, this is one thing where the millennials showed me something better. And uh, they were texting instead of using the pager. And I couldn't figure why they were doing that until one day when uh, I couldn't get my resident because I would page him 
And then he was in, in doing a procedure. And then I'd be in with the patient and he'd page me back and, and we couldn't connect. And then uh, he, he says, well, why don't you just text me what you need? And that solved the whole problem because I could text him what I needed and he was busy. But as soon as he read my text, he could just do it. He didn't need to even call me back. This is what we need to do. Uh, you know, and it changed my life for the better. So the millennials taught me some stuff, how to, how to use the technology better uh, along the way. But the millennials definitely had a different um, style about them, I guess, than us older doctors. Um, and I think they can learn some stuff from us and we can learn some stuff from them. Yeah, so far I feel like the, my relationship with millennials has been pretty symbiotic. There's some things that they really would 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 benefit from learning from us. But at the same time, I agree. I've learned a, a tremendous amount from them as well. Um, I think uh, the one thing that, what, what one bit of advice would you give to millennials, millennial physicians in particular, that uh, they're not getting right now? You know, um, millennials live in a throwaway society and they grew up in a throwaway society. And I think that really hurts them when it comes to their job. And that's probably why they end up leaving their jobs a lot now. Hmm. Uh, you know, we, the millennials grew up in a time where, hey, the new iPhone just came out. Let's trade in. Well, what's wrong with the one you got? What's well, not the new one? Let's just trade. Wow. You know, and so the, or uh, now it's become, you know, just to get a divorce. Uh, it's just become just so easy and common. Oh, let's just do it. Uh, we're not getting along. Let's just instead of working on it. So we don't fix stuff. We throw it away and get a new one. And so I think when you live in a society that that is the style of, of, of way you do things, then when it comes to getting your job, you think that way uh, about your job as well. The job can be throw away. You, you, you come in with this, starter job mentality. And I've seen that a lot. Well, I just need to get my starter job. I saw somebody say that with a spouse. Well, I just need to hurry up and get married and get that first one out of the way so I can get wow. to the right. No way. You know, I, I couldn't believe I was hearing that, but people are treating their job that way. You know, you don't want to have a starter job. Um, you want to get your training done decide what you want and then go get the final job the first time. Uh, if you go into the attitude of, well, I can just toss it if it doesn't work, that's going to cost you a fortune, not in just money, but in stress and attitude and lifestyle. Uh, changing jobs means a new town, a new house, you're selling a house, uh, you know, there, there's so much headache that goes with changing a new job, a new interview uh, time. Um, it, you just can't take the throwaway mentality into your job search. What an excellent analogy. Um, you know, I, my, my whole thought about millennials is this whole search for happiness. And, and I think you're absolutely right. If, if your search for happiness leads you to always exchange what you have for something better, you'll never be fulfilled. And at the end of the day, you want to be happy, right? Right. 
So I'll just, I'll just throw it away. Think about, well, what, you know, I, I went through this with my partner when I first got started and, and there was something, uh, I was having a problem with some nurses at the hospital when I was a brand new, new attending. Um, and he sat me down and he said, listen, we're going to be partners for a long time. We need to make this work. This is what you're doing and you've got to change this or we won't be able to make this work. And his whole attitude was, Hey, there's a little bit broken here. Let's fix it. Now today in my attitude might've just been, Hey, let's just get another guy there. Diamond does. And we'll just toss this guy and start over. But he knew how expensive it is for him to start over with a new guy. And, uh, it's way easier to fix the guy you got and help him out and help him be better. And, and I was really fortunate to have two older partners when I uh, got started who actually took me under their wings and mentored me and showed me how to be a doctor. Uh, and it was things like that. We'd go out for breakfast and say, listen, you're, you're not doing this right. Uh, if you will make these changes, life will be better. And that made us last a long time. The three of us uh, were together the entire uh, time during my career. Wow. Um, you know, so on that note, uh, I find uh, what I find most physicians, young physicians in particular, are lacking. And I'm not sure if it's based upon this, the way the system's been evolving, but very few of them have any um, traditional mentorship. Um, they get assigned a advisor, but it rarely blossoms into a mentorship role. And I think that was the nice thing about uh, being part of an older generation is that they really took that upon themselves to to make sure they mentored somebody younger than them. Um, and that's really why I'm doing this podcast and blogging, et cetera. You know, I, I really take it upon myself as well to, to try to mentor people. Um, I don't feel like I was mentored as well as I could have been. Um, and so now I really... You know, if I find somebody and they're struggling, it's the first thing I want to do is help them out. Well, it sure helped me uh, when somebody older just took me under the wing and says, hey, let me show you how to do this. That, that really probably had a huge effect on my career. I don't know what the effect was because I don't know what would happen if they didn't do that. So I don't have a comparison. Um, but I can imagine that things wouldn't have done as well. And, and I, I just talked to a doctor just, just recently uh, who said two new people had come to town and he was trying to be that mentor to them to get them off on the right start. And it was interesting that one of them was responding, listening, making changes and practice was getting better. And one of them wouldn't listen at all. Wow. They had, they had their way. This is how I learned it in, in residency. And you don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. This isn't the way my teachers did it in residency. And he just kind of is a wall. And, and doesn't uh, take the advice. And so if you are a young one and some older guy offers you advice, that is golden. Golden. Take that guy's experience and put it in your cap. Now, you may not use everything they say, but put it in your filing cabinet. So maybe we should make the new rule for finding a new job, uh, location, money, lifestyle, environment, and get, you know, seek help from someone who's already uh, been down that road. Yeah. Find a mentor. You know, one of the things to watch out for, for instance, uh, you're talking about negotiating. Uh, here's an example of where you're not going to find a mentor. You come into a practice uh, and I saw this just recently twice 
and the, the senior partner owns 51% of the practice and all of the junior partners split up 49% of the practice. Wow. Okay. So in that environment, you're probably not going to find a mentor because what you have is a, a king and his minions. <laughs> uh, you want to come into a practice that everybody splits it evenly. We all own the same amount. Or if you're coming in as an employee, all of us in the group, uh, they were all employees. We are all going to take the same amount of work. We're all going to take the same amount of call. If one guy has a contract that says he only has to take call once a month and the rest of you have to take it every third night, that's not going to work out well. Find a relationship where you can see it on paper that these people want to work together, that we want to be partners in what we're doing. That's going to be where you find a great relationship. If you find a place where one guy wants to be the king, uh, you're going to have strife and you're not going to find that great, that mentor relationship that you need. Exactly. And, and I think what you illustrate, and your, your book really does a really nice job talking about all these topics, the starting your practice right. But it's all intertwined. Like you said at the very beginning, it's all intertwined. Um, and the more, the earlier you start doing your research and, you know, looking at the practice and, and really having uh, good comparisons, the better you're going to, the better job you're going to choose. Um, it's going to last you a lifetime. I think that's true. Yeah. And if you haven't read that book and you're going to move into your first attending job, you're going in with a handicap. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, well, every resident should read this book before they that move. I totally agree. You know, and, and uh, in the end, the goal is to have a well-balanced, happy career and not be burned out. Um, and, you know, reading your book and, and listening to all the things that you've gone through. And, and you know, I think you've, um, where you really bring a lot of advice to the table is the fact that you have mentored and coached other physicians who've not made very good choices. And so you have a rich experience, not only with what you've gone through, but with, with others have gone through. Um, and so I, I think you're the, the doctor's starting, the doctor's guide does a really excellent job kind of going through those different scenarios. And so uh, what, what's, what are other ways people can learn more about living an authentic and rich medical, uh, having a uh, rich medical career? Well, the name of my practice or my business now is Prescription for Financial Success, Helping Healthcare Professionals Thrive. And that's the thing. You want to go out and get some information about how to make your life better as a doctor. And I'm trying to pass on that stuff. So sign up to my blog. You know, it's free. Uh, you get some free articles once a week telling you how to either have a better practice or do better with your money or invest better or get out of debt. Um Read my doctor's guide book series. Look for other things. There's a lot of other doctors that are teaching uh, good things online uh, about either getting out of debt or having a more fulfilling practice or finding balance or things like that. There's a lot of information out there. If you'll just step out and look for it, if you have the attitude that I'd like to have that, let me take a look. You'll find lots of resources out there, like this podcast is another example. I mean, you're out there trying to help doctors have a better life. And I'd like to help them thrive. You'd like to help them thrive. And there's some others out there as well. And if you just kind of look around a little bit, you'll find lots of information. Excellent. Well, on that note, hey, Dr. Fawcett, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, everything that you heard today, I will put on the show notes. I'll put your website on the show notes, access to all these resources. I think, uh, 
I think hopefully we could help uh, reach a lot of people with this podcast. And uh, I can't wait. Uh, I, I, I'll say myself, I've learned so much just speaking to you. And I look forward to uh, continue reading your, your blog and learning more. Ah, well, keep it up. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Physician Negotiator podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit thephysiciannegotiator.com.